Ideas on institutions and alternatives. I'm Lister Sinclair. In 1962, Thomas Kuhn, an American historian of science, published The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. He claimed in this book that science is practiced within a comprehensive thought form, which he called a paradigm. Paradigms settle fundamental questions, stabilize facts within networks of supporting assumptions, and allow what Kuhn termed normal science to proceed. But at their edges, he said, anomalies accumulate. Anomalies, in his words, are violations of expectations, things which, according to the paradigm, oughtn't to be happening. Enough of them, under the right circumstances, may eventually constellate a new paradigm. In a new book called Crossing the River, David Schwartz draws on Kuhn's work to argue that just such a paradigm shift may now be taking place in the field of developmental disabilities. He calls it a conceptual revolution. And in this third hour of our six-part series, Beyond Institutions, he and his colleague Kathy Lee talk about what it is and why it's happening. Beyond Institutions, Part 3, by David Cayley. In an essay called Regenerated Community, community organizer John McKnight claims that three distinct visions determine attitudes to disability. The three perspectives he identifies are the therapeutic vision, the advocacy vision, and the community vision. The therapeutic vision defines people in terms of professionally ascribed needs which expert systems ought to meet. The advocacy vision sees them as bearers of embattled rights which need to be defended. The community vision puts belonging in the first place and sees in each individual a gift. Put in these terms, the conceptual revolution of which David Schwartz writes in Crossing the River is taking place on the cusp between the advocacy vision and the community vision. Historically, the advocacy vision has been responsible for great improvements in the lives of people with disabilities. The advocacy of parents, friends, and concerned professionals got people out of large institutions and into more modestly scaled community services. It created special systems of education and transportation, required that public places be made accessible to wheelchairs, and so on. But ultimately, this vision suffered from two weaknesses. First, by erecting what John McKnight calls a defensive wall of helpers, it came to conceive of the community as a hostile rather than a hospitable place. And second, by surrounding people with a thicket of regulatory and legal safeguards, it eventually made community service systems, like group homes, nearly as inflexible as the state hospitals and asylums they had replaced. David Schwartz knows these weaknesses at first hand. In the 70s, he left a job at an old mental hospital in upstate New York to start a group home agency, and then watched as the new agency gradually grew to resemble the institution he thought he had left behind. He concluded that the power and resilience of institutions must grow from some deeper root. So when he was appointed director of Pennsylvania's Developmental Disabilities Planning Council in 1983, he tried to begin moving the council right outside the sphere in which institutionalization could recur by supporting projects that were exploring the community vision. These projects involved asking ordinary citizens 
with no involvement in the world of services and no therapeutic agenda to become involved in the lives of people with disabilities on the grounds of hospitality, affinity, and potential friendship. David Schwartz came to call this approach simply asking, and the people who do it, askers. It produced astonishing results, anomalies in Thomas Kuhn's terms. People did respond. Communities revealed unexpected reserves of hospitality, and people with disabilities really did enrich these communities with surprising gifts. The movement from an advocacy vision which stresses rights to service to a community vision based on belonging is the passage that David Schwartz describes as crossing the river. I spoke with him about it at his home in Harrisburg, where I was his guest in June of 1993. It's a journey which begins, he says, with the recognition that the dominant paradigm has been pushed to its limit. We're encountering the slow and really kind of queasy realization that all of these services that we've built with such effort, and I've spent the major portion of my adult life trying to build, simply seem to be insufficient and developing a lot of really negative side effects that no matter how one reforms them, you can't seem to fix it. And it seems to me that uh, this is when a conceptual revolution can happen. Kuhn says that it's only when no move on the chessboard will possibly solve the problem that the idea that a move outside of the chessboard or off the chessboard can even be considered. Now, the idea of asking people of trying to regenerate community and ask ordinary citizens to be involved in the lives of people with disabilities is such a move off the chessboard. It's not a reform. It's something completely different. Now, you know, in the book, I talk about this as crossing the river, and I picture this kind of metaphor that on the one side of the river is the world of professional bureaucratic, structured human services. And on the other side of the river is the world of uh, kind of messy communities. And what we're trying to do is help people come out of their exclusive existence as clients within the professional world and take them across the river into the world which has existed since the beginning of time. That's the world in which people relate to each other in the good and bad ways that they've always related to each other. We've tended to forget that world because of our historically recent devotion to developing all these systems that can care. I should add, though, that a friend of mine, John O'Brien, did point out to me that uh, he's not sure this river that we're crossing is actually a river. Uh, it's probably more accurate to say that it's a swamp. It's full of opportunities for self-deception and uh, opportunities for changing something and then finding out that you really haven't changed it at all. You've just kind of put a new name on it. And that even when you get done, you may, from a historical point of view, say, 
in the field of developmental disabilities or in the field of disabilities in general, the emphasis started to change in the late 80s and early 90s. That's about all you will say. If you're going to operate in the real world, you're up to your knees in the mud. You are in the swamp. If we are in the early stages of a conceptual revolution and have a, a toe in post-modernity, as people say now, what would be the differences in attitude, in approach? I'm thinking, for example, towards suffering, towards the very existence of disability. What, what would be the differences in attitude across that watershed? I think one of the things that might be involved in it is letting go of the conviction that we can fix everything, that all sorts of difficulties and problems in living can be avoided or sidestepped. And if something bad happens, uh, it shouldn't have happened, or it can be repaired. Now, I have to be careful in saying something like this, because, of course, this kind of thinking can be used by those people who uh, advocate abandoning people to suffering and misery. Well, you know, God intended it this way, and you can't do anything about it. And I don't mean that at all. It may be that we are slowly starting to edge up on the understanding that in our enthusiastic vigor to help people, we can do things actually which hurt them over the long run. And that what we might have is a slow acceptance of people for who they are. Let's take the example of the situation of mental retardation. One of the real handicaps that people with the label of mental retardation suffer has to do with the idea that they are less than fully wonderful additions to the world. And I think one of the things that we might have on the other side of the river is a, a greater acceptance that we're all in this boat together and that people bring different qualities to the world. And in fact, the qualities that people with disabilities bring, the qualities that particularly people with mental retardation in this instance bring, are qualities which are very much needed by the world, uh, that are not lesser qualities necessarily. I mean, that, that great movie, the Dustin Hoffman movie, uh, Rain Man, you know, really traces this in a popular movie in the beginning understanding that uh, that this is a guy with a lot of problems because he has autism to his recognition uh, the recognition of his brother uh, that he is uh, a unique and an important person that he is his brother david schwartz is well aware of the pitfalls of trying to set up a new orthodoxy with community as the shining city on the hill and in some ways, he says, he now prefers the term culture to community, both because the word community is so frequently made to serve as a facade for some institutional purpose, and because the word culture conveys the sense of something growing, 
something with a life of its own. But whatever it's called, he says, the way to avoid co-opting it is by understanding and respecting its nature. It seems to me that it's very, very important in pursuing this work of this asking, this different type of work uh, across the river, if you will, is to understand very clearly what, you might say, a community, a culture, the vernacular world, whatever you want to call it, is, and how it is distinct from the world, let's say, of social services. Because you don't want to come in with social services and colonize that community world. That's been the problem thus far. It's much easier to come in and set up social services in this environment, to set up a social service agency that deals with the need of a community than it is to help the community try to figure out how to do this itself. Because, of course, if you start to realize that the service that you bring may address the immediate need, but the other thing that it's doing as a side product of it, it is weakening the community's native ability, whatever that is, to respond to the situation itself. If you come in and take care of every person who is blind in a town with a service agency, no one will need to know what you need to do to be able to have a relationship with a person who is blind. And these things will, then you're exclusively dependent on the service agency, which also is exclusively dependent on money. So it seems to me to be very clear, is an asker doing social services or not? I would say in the pure form, and of course they're they're pure forms and they're not pure forms. In the pure form, an asker is not doing social services. What an asker is doing is like what a community organizer does. You know, Saul Alinsky, the great Chicago community organizer, used to talk about, I think, Alinsky's golden rule. Never do for people what they can do for themselves. Now, this is a really tough thing because, you know, if we take the the parable of the Good Samaritan. The asker walks down the road. The asker sees someone lying in the street or in the ditch. Our trained response is to immediately help that person ourselves, which is, of course, a wonderful thing to do. But if it is your vocation to go about this, then you have a first person, and then you have a second person, and then you have a third person, and then you need to build a bigger agency, and then you need to have a room with 12 beds in it, and then you have to have a room with 24 beds into it, and then you have to have a social worker. All these settings follow the standard thing. What the asker does, in distinction, is a cultural approach rather than a social services approach to avoid what would amount to colonization. In other words, the asker will stand over that person lying in the ditch, give them a little first aid if they can, but then start hailing people walking down the street. Hey, you, will you help this person? Hey, you, will you help this person? Will you, will you, will you? They see their vocation 
not as taking the first step towards building a social service agency, but in actually being able to stimulate the cultural, the inherent cultural ability of that society to respond to that person. You know what I, I call what we do sometimes sociopuncture. You know, if you ever go to an acupuncturist, uh, an acupuncturist might say, oh, so you got a sore th throat and there's this and this going on. And then he might come and stick a, a needle in your toe. It's a little tiny needle. I mean, it's, it's, there's nothing. How should this have any effect? But in fact, what happens is that you get better. The idea of sociopuncture, of an art of social stimulation, comes close to the heart of David Schwartz's vision. At present, we do social service the same way we treat sewage or smelt iron ore with large mechanical systems. Big effects are believed to result from big causes, which means, in the case of social services, large amounts of money expended and large numbers of people employed. David Schwartz imagines achieving large social effects as the acupuncturist does, by action which is precise, intelligent, and limited. That, for me, is the point of the example he just gave of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The duty of universal care is deeply embedded in societies influenced by Christianity. But the large systems that have been erected in pursuit of this duty, and as its logical consequence, have often been blind to cultural habits of hospitality and care. These habits have been disregarded, dismissed as unscientific, and often wantonly destroyed. Systems, then, could be described as forces of deculturation, which stunt and deform aptitudes for hospitality and care that would otherwise grow perennially in our gardens. David Schwartz, in this sense, wants a new, self-limiting science of social service. And this desire to heal society, rather than replace it with something more reliable, arises from a question he has been asking himself for a long time. Can there be such a thing as a physician of the social body? Now, we know that a lot of people have gone about uh, the improvement of what we call society by a lot of different methods. There are people who have tried to approach it through what used to be called social engineering. You know, let's get this all structured right. And there are people who are organizers, you know, out of kind of the Sololinsky school, there are people, certainly there are lots and lots of bureaucrats who administer things. But I wonder if one can try to look at society as if one were the attending physician to a society that was attempting to heal itself. You know, my father was a dentist and professor uh, at Columbia University who did the original work on something called the temporomandibular joint, you know, TMJ. He started the world's first clinic and that, or wrote the original books on the subject, etc. And sometimes he used to take me with him when he would give a course someplace or a lecture at a, at a dental school somewhere. And, of course, we had some many conversations when I was young. 
And one of the things that I really picked up from my father was this. The body is not a machine. Now, with this particular problem, this jaw problem, people who would come to him for treatment had had uh, various surgery done to them to try to straighten things out or their teeth all ground down or various things. And uh, what he would have to do is try to look at things a different way, not to try to pick up your saw immediately and try to fix it, but try to stop and listen very carefully to who the person was, to examine them, to do something that was fairly radical for a dentist to do, which was take a history, take a long and thorough history. Who is this person? What is going on? Is it physiological? Is it psychological? Is it a combination of those things? It is a result of an original small problem compounded by wrong treatment. Uh, you really had to understand these things before you started reaching for your rapidly revolving dental drill, as he was saying, and getting in there and starting to change things around. And I think the other thing which I got was the idea that within people are healing capacities. Well, I mention that because I think that was the main influence that developed in me the understanding or the conviction better that society is an organism, that cultures, rather, are organisms, that they're organisms like people are organisms, and that there are tendencies towards illness, illness and pathology in them, just like there are within people, and there are tendencies towards growth and flourishing and healing even in the face of obstacles, and that it is your vocation, if you are in the situation of attending to such a person or such a society, to try to come to the aid of those healing tendencies which exist, and that in this, and only in this, will come healing, recovery, improvement that this produces, I think, a different kind of an approach than if one approaches it as social engineering or as a question of uh, solely individual rights. You have to understand the history of it. You almost have to close your eyes and try to feel the various social dynamics which are emerging in a kind of a historical swirl, just like the dynamics of the life forces of an individual person who presents themselves to a physician, must be grasped if you're going to come in and give the right medication or put the acupuncture needle in the right place or say the right word in therapy to try to help these healing processes to take place and to try to delicately pull forth and guide those healing powers so that the culture can attempt to regain balance and heal itself. And that's all that you were doing. You're not controlling it. You're not in control of the situation. You're merely trying to aid things to move in a certain direction.
The Developmental Disabilities Planning Council of Pennsylvania has been supporting the practice that is at the heart of David Schwartz's conceptual revolution, the practice of asking for the last 10 years. As often happens, the same new old idea appeared simultaneously in many other places throughout North America. But the stimulation and support of what its protégés call the DD Council has probably given the practice a unique mass in Pennsylvania. I asked David Schwartz to introduce me to some of the people doing this work around the state, and one of the people he recommended was Kathy Lee of the town of Meadville. She told me how it had happened for her. In 1986, after I graduated from college, I went and taught in a very poor part of West Virginia, and I hated it <laughs> for a variety of reasons. And I really wanted to go home, and so I went home, and there was no work for teachers, and I needed a job. And someone said, why don't you go work in a group home? And I was like, what's a group home? I'd never even heard of them. And they're like, well, they're homes where people with disabilities live, and you would go in and help them with their food and shopping and whatnot. And so I thought, gee, that sounds all right. I could do that. And uh, I went and uh, I worked in a home with these three women who didn't talk and I can remember meeting them and being scared to death because I'd never met anyone with a disability because in Meadville things were very segregated and they went to different schools and rode on different buses. And by the time I was done, six months later, working in the group home, I loved these women and these women loved me and they'd met my family and we'd gone shopping and done all of these just things together and they had lived in an institution up until the time I met them so it was sort of this experience that was happening together to all of us was getting to know each other in the community. And from there I worked in an agency where I did a variety of things. I worked in a sheltered workshop, I worked in adult daycare, and I just kept thinking there's got to be more than this. I mean these poor people, they just basically came every day and did the same thing. And everybody thought that was alright. Like the sheltered workshop, literally someone would sit and their, their job would be to sand a piece of wood all day long or to take a, a bolt and take it apart, and the person sitting next to you would put it together. And I kept thinking it was like, uh, I always described it as a snapshot. Like you could take the same snapshot and put it on a calendar, and it would be the same day every day, all of their lives, and people just thought that was okay. Especially people that were behaviorally challenging. And people would say, well, why do you think they're acting out? And I'd say, if you had to sand a piece of wood for eight hours every day, tell me you would sit and be happy or glad or smiling, you know, I would probably think of things to do to get out of that. So at that time I met up with a woman named Deb Ostrovsky and we found out that we had like these same similar views, like what's going on? All this money is being spent to give these people things they don't want. They don't want to live in group homes. They don't want to sit and sand a piece of wood every day. They want to be out in the community. They want to have people that love them. They want to be doing interesting things. And we started sort of plotting and scheming that, gee, if we could get one person's money, you know, we would help that one person get what they wanted. And at that time, we became aware of a man named David, and David was going to be institutionalized because of his bad behavior. And we went to the county and we said, we'll do it. We'll support David. People thought we were nuts. I mean, agencies get millions of dollars, and they have accountants and attorneys, and we were talking about two women who merely all we had was our beliefs and a bit of experience, you know. But for whatever reason, um, we always say, grace of God, you know, the county said, go ahead. And this man, who was perceived as being very dangerous and being very aggressive, wanted to live with his friend Benny. And Benny had a wife and a daughter. And we went to Benny, and we said, what do you think about that? And Benny was like, I think that'd be great. And we supported them. We gave uh, the family some money, um, sort of um, like a stipend every month to help with expenses. 
And then we said, Dave, what do you want to do every day? You know, and he said, well, I really like this guy, Ron, that I work in a group home with. We went to Ron. We said, if we, you know, if we can support you financially, will you work with Dave? And he was like, yeah, sure, great. And here this person that was perceived as being very dangerous and mean and not nice, you know, was living in a family in the community, was going out every day with his friend Ron, was learning how to golf, had a job at the college. I mean, his life was completely turned around. And it was merely, instead of giving him what was already there, we said, instead, what do you want? <laughs> and giving him what he wanted drastically changed his behavior and his life for the better. This is a, sounds a nearly miraculous story about someone who was being restrained, who was everyone was afraid of him, and then like that? Yeah, literally overnight, yeah. Once he got to a place, yeah, I would say from the time he left the group home, it, you know, it was that same day. We saw him physically change. Before he was very stiff and his shoulders were always up to his ears because he was very tense. And you'd see him out in the community and he was very relaxed. And he went from looking like a client in a group home to looking like a regular guy. He'd wear, you know, ball caps. And the family that he lived with was very careful to make sure that, you know, he bought clothes that made him just look like everybody else. And he just really went from... Uh, just in an appearance of, of being someone that was very different to somebody that was just another guy. Why would this family have taken on somebody who <clears throat> looked like being a lot of trouble? Well, Benny, the man that David uh, lived with, had worked with David in the group home, and they had sort of uh, this unwritten agreement or relationship or something. There was an undercurrent between them where Benny understood David. David ran away from a bowling alley once, carried his bowling ball like five miles to Benny's house, and Benny would open the door and welcome him in. And Benny would do stuff with David like uh, they would go watch football games and baseball games, and he just treated David like how David wanted to be treated, like a normal guy. But they, uh, Benny was a guy that who had a past. I mean, he had a past history, and, and he had really made a lot of positive changes in his life. And I asked him once, I said, you know, what was that? You know, there had to have been that moment of hesitation, like, what am I doing here? And he sat down and he said, you know, I remember times in my life where if one person would have reached out to me, what a difference it would have made. And he said, and there were people in my life who did reach out, and I wanted to be that person for David. Tell me about some of the other people you're working with. Well, the next person we worked with was Terry. And Terry was a person who, when she lived in the group home, didn't leave her group home for six months because she would get in the van and then refuse to get off. So they just literally quit taking her anywhere. She had open sores on her back from throwing herself down all of the time. She um, would pinch herself and hit herself and was in the emergency room all of the time. And she was also being discharged from her program. And they asked us to step in. And we met with the people that knew her best, the people that really cared about her and loved her. And by this time, there were very few people who were in any way supportive of her. And we said, because Terry doesn't talk, we said, you need to help us figure out what Terry wants and what would be best. So we all sat down together and we sort of dreamed this dream about if Terry could live anywhere and do anything, what would it look like? And we came up with a plan that she would live with people who the time didn't really matter, that they would have to be pretty flexible because sometimes she gets places and doesn't want to leave or sometimes it's time to go someplace and she doesn't want to go. And they would have to be people that were outdoorsy and very active. And we just painted this picture of, uh, of what we wanted. And then we went out and we just literally went about asking, do you know someone who, is, who are these things? And we were introduced to a woman named Martha 
And Martha at the time was a woman living on welfare. She had three sons. And Martha is just one of these incredible, loving, caring people who had fallen on hard times. It, she's never wore a watch. Time had no significant meaning to her whatsoever. And we introduced her to Terry. And also, Martha had no experience whatsoever with people with disabilities. And everyone kept saying, no, you know, you're going to have to get someone who probably has a degree in all of this. And, and, and so we introduced Martha to Terry. And, uh, and uh, Martha's first read on what was going on was, you know, I just think Terry's picking up on bad vibes. Those people don't like her. And we were like, you know, and this was in her first meeting. She was very perceptive of what was going on for Terry. So um, we asked Martha, would you welcome Terry into your home if we provided you some financial support and a lot of spiritual support and just being there for you, would you welcome Terry into your home? And she said yes. And so in essence, in putting them together, Martha has gone from living in a trailer with her mother and two brothers and her three sons to owning her own home, to living out in the country where she's wanted to live. Um, we've been able to support her boys to do some sports things. We have, um, and then there's Terry living with them, who is now living a life that, you know, if I think Terry could talk, would say. And she does, um, in just a lot of different ways, she doesn't hurt herself as much anymore. Now, that doesn't all go away, because a lot of that's her communication. And not being able to talk, and sometimes hurting herself, it's getting our attention, it's whatever. But she's in a place where she is loved and known. And that's our wish for everybody, is that people become known. Uh, we went to a, this is a, aside sort of we went to a memorial day party and uh, <clears throat> excuse me it was about two two years after terry had lived there and we went to this memorial day party deb and i and we pulled up and there's all these people you know and and i didn't know anybody it was sort of an invited guest and deb knew a number of people and terry comes with martha everyone knew terry <laughs> more people knew terry than knew us and they're like terry how you doing and terry's a person that really likes to be noisy and just you know just as exuberant and and about to, as it gets dark, we hear screaming in the woods. And here, Terry and a couple of her friends had gone up into the woods and were chasing the kids around, and everyone was screaming. And she came down and just had the best time. And I just said, you know, this is what it's about, you know, to show up at a picnic and have everyone say, hey, Terry, how you doing? You know, I was just really touched by that. Kathy Lee and her partner, Debbie Ostrovsky, through their agency, Supports Incorporated, were able to get Terry and David into the community by diverting the money that would otherwise have gone to supporting them in institutions. Considerable sums of public money are often spent in maintaining people in institutions where they are deeply unhappy, and it's an interesting aspect of Terry's story that her money, once diverted, was able to do the family that welcomed her as much good as it did her. Kathy Lee's agency now supports five people in this way. Two of the others are also happy in their new situations, but they have one woman in their care who has consistently had trouble in the community, someone no less dear to them than the others, but who ate up their time to the point of crisis in the agency and who was asking, at the time Kathy Lee and I spoke, to go back to the institution. So it's not a case of one size fits all, but it has proven to be true most of the time that people thrive when they get the often very ordinary things that they want. A final story from Kathy Lee concerns a woman called Peg, who was on the board of Supports Incorporated and who desperately wanted to get out of the nursing home where she was living. The idea for how it could be done came from a book called Circles of Friends by Robert and Martha Persky. 
It told the story of Judith Snow, a Toronto woman who, despite being able to move only her head and one thumb, was able to get off a dead-end chronic care ward and into her own place with the help of what, in her case, was called a Joshua Committee, after the biblical Joshua who blew down the walls of Jericho. Kathy Lee decided that the same thing might work with her friend Peg. Peg would tell me all the time, I want to get out, I want to get out of the nursing home. And as a single person, a per, you know, I am only one, I thought there's no way, she can't come live with me, I, you know, I don't have time or energy to support her where she would want to live. But when I heard about this idea about you could get a group of people together, it was like the lights went on, you know, and you're sort of like, why didn't I think of that? And the other thing was Peg was just very specific about living in the group home, and she would say, I don't want to live here, I don't want to live here, I don't want to live here. And we went away on a retreat for our board, and I finally wanted to take action when she looked at me and said, if I live there, I'm going to die. And in saying, I don't want to live there, what she was saying was, I don't want to die there. I'm dying. I'm dying in this place. Spiritually, physically, emotionally, I'm dying here. So it was at that point that I realized that we had to take action. And we got a group of people together, and part of them were people that knew me, my mother, my father, my sisters, and part of them were people that knew Peg, and it was like uh, people that had worked with her in the past, and people that um, she had known, her friend Jean, who had been her friend for 12 years. And we got together mm -hmm. one night in this church, and uh, what we did was Peg and I had decided that what people needed to hear was her story. And Peg is a person who has cerebral palsy, and she's sometimes hard to understand. So it doesn't happen very often. You really have to listen to understand, and it takes a long time. So it had never happened before in her life where there was actually a group of people called together simply to listen to her for an extended period of time. So Peg started at like 7 o'clock in telling her story, and she told about um, how her mother was in labor with her for three days, and her mother was at home, and how the doctors told her mother to send her away, but her mother said, no, she's my daughter, and I'm going to keep her and that how she can remember, she never went to school because there was no public schools at that time, and that they would send a teacher over to the house, but the teacher would drink and fall asleep. So she never learned to read or to do math or anything like that. And to go out, her father would have to carry her because she didn't get a wheelchair until she was 40, and that was when it was donated from a funeral home. And just this incredible story. And people were just all wrapped up in it, you know, and you could just see the look on people's faces, like, this is an incredible story. And how when she was little, her, her sister would have, she remembered her sister having a Valentine's party, and they sent her away, so she wasn't there. She had to go to her aunt's house, so no one saw her during the party, and then she was allowed to come back. And then she talked about her life with her mother, and then how her mother died, and, she, and all through it all, the theme was, this person's perseverance is just, you know, I don't know if I could have gone on. And then to end up in a nursing home, and literally they came and said, you're going to a nursing home. And she said she didn't want to go. And they said, no, you're going. And two weeks, and she said, at least give me time to mark my things, which is just incredible to me that, you know, at that time, she knew what was, you know, that what was going to happen with to her personal items. And she gets to the nursing home and then just spends three years trying to get out. And people were just really caught up in it and people were crying. And from it, action, people wanted to take action. And they said, what can we do? And we did the dreaming and we said, this is where Peg wants to live, and this is what, you know, and Peg was able to say, this is what I want to do, and 
Um, we broke things down into steps, so different people in the group were different, doing different things, and some people were checking with realtors, and other people were checking with um, different places to see if we could get ramps built, and checking into how could we get furniture, and and it just sort of evolved that we kept meeting every couple weeks, every month, and from the time we met in February, Peg moved out of the nursing home June 15th into an apartment that she shared with an attendant. And it was just an incredible day. I can remember leaving. And, you know, Peg's a very independent and very proud woman. And the last thing that the nurse said to me was she leaned over and gave me her pack of cigarettes. And she said, she seems content with eight cigarettes. We give her eight cigarettes a day. And I thought, oh, God, you know, you get to smoke as much as you want, you know. And I just nodded my head and I said, yes, like, oh, just let us get out of here. And we wheeled out and there was a whole group of people and we stood and applauded because it was like a moment, you know, this was what we had worked for. And um, since then, Peg's gone on to live with another family that's very welcome to her. And um, just she just got done attending a leadership institute with the state and she's a consultant for the people that um, gives attendant care and she goes and talks to other people in, in nursing homes about getting out. She's become active in her church. Before she couldn't attend her church, it was too far away. Now she goes every Sunday. She's on the welcoming committee. She spends one Sunday a month sitting and shaking everybody's hands as they go to church. And it's just, it's just the life that she wanted. She finally gets to lead. Over the years that Kathy Lee has been asking, she has witnessed a gradual change in attitudes in the part of Pennsylvania where she works. Possibilities previously denied have had to be admitted as people have seen for themselves what her agency has been able to do. But at first, she says, people in the field were extremely skeptical. The people used to describe me as being out there. They'd say, well, you know, your ideas are really out there. And I would think, my God, where is that, you know, because I would think they were so clear, like I was just really, you know, making my point, and then I would sit and I would talk about people making choices and dreaming and getting what they wanted, and I would look at these blank looks, and then later someone would take me aside and say, well, you know, it was a good message, but it's really out there. So uh, what we've just done is just said, you know, well, what actually has occurred is now people's thinking is more like ours. All of a sudden, the other agencies in town are looking at, wait a minute, you know, maybe the group home thing wasn't a great idea. Tell us how you did it. Show us how. People from Philadelphia will call us and say, we heard about what you're doing. And it's never, it's never, I mean, we don't write anything, so it's never anything, you know, or, uh, you know, we're just not a very public thing. And, you, and it's, I heard from so-and-so who heard from so-and-so who heard from so-and-so, and that's just incredible to us, that what people are hearing is it, it can happen. People's lives can change. People will respond if you ask. People can live lives as valued as anyone else's. It's possible. Is there an underlying, I'll say religious, I, I, I could be misunderstood in saying religious, but is there an underlying religious ground to this work? Um, not in the sense that we promote any, I mean, it's not like we pray together or... Well, that's what I meant right by being now. misunderstood, yeah, but... Right. No, but, you know, what we, what Deb and I both have, um, similar religious beliefs, and, but we've never sat down and, I mean, before this, we never sat down and said, let's talk about our religious beliefs and see how that fits into our work. But what we have seen is that in asking, we received... It was as simple as that. In, in as saying, 
we need a family for Terry, and this is who they need to be. Literally, overnight, there was a knock at the door, and the family was there. And I, I've always taken that back to doing the right thing. You know, there's support for that. You know, there's incredible good karma going on that it's, it's, it's supported by a number of different things that we, we believe that you could never see or know, but you sense. And we just call it grace, that it's the right thing and it's blessed and it happens. David Schwartz began this hour with the claim that the changes with which he has been involved in the field of disabilities amount to what he calls a conceptual revolution, an idea he borrows from Thomas Kuhn. Kuhn argued from his study of revolutions in scientific thought that periods of change will have two features. First, a crisis of the established order, which will be marked by what he calls pronounced professional insecurity. This first crisis, it seems to me, has already been with us since the 60s and is evidenced not just by professional insecurity but also by the internal decay of large service institutions and a widespread public conviction that these institutions are no longer affordable or effective. The second feature is the accumulation of what Kuhn calls anomalies or things that the old paradigm can't explain but a new one could. The transformation in the lives of the people Kathy Lee supports, once they got what they wanted, is a perfect example of an anomaly. It doesn't make sense in the world of treatment regimens, behavior plans, and staffing diagrams, but it is perfectly intelligible when it is assumed that people flourish when they are known by their gifts and languish when they are known by their deficiencies. Whether this conceptual revolution will actually be carried through is not something anyone can say confidently from the midst of it. History, David Schwartz notes in his book, is littered with failed revolutions. And not knowing, he says, one can only keep trying to cross the river a few boats at a time. When the first group home was established, everybody in the institutions said, this is a little silly little shoot, this is a little silly experiment, it will die. Actually, what happened was the institutions have died. And what's left are the shoots, are the group homes, which are now becoming big trees in themselves. So it seems to me we're poised here. And when you're poised and you don't know, you really just have to continue ahead and see what will happen and what the world will be. I mean, you're entering into this great tumult where you're like in a, in a vast battle. It's completely confused what's going on. You only have a kind of a dim sense of the outline of things and can see some things ahead of you. And you try to do what in your, your heart and your mind tells you to do. What matters, in other words, is always the present. Asking discovers a landscape that already exists, not one that needs to be invented. It passes unnoticed only because we are so mesmerized by systems and so willing to believe that the certified outputs of institutions are all that really count in the endless game of problems and solutions. But the real conceptual revolution, David Schwartz says, is the patience, the curiosity, the intelligence, and the humility to 
to see what is already there. It seems to me that in looking around at our culture, if we want to look for what you could call rests of hospitality or little fragments of hospitality that still remained, you can do it if you put the right kind of glasses on. Now, I've been thinking about this in the last couple of years, and once I started putting these glasses on, have you ever that, had that kind of glasses where, you know, like Polaroid lenses where you're looking into the surface of a pond and you can't see anything, and then you put on these Polaroid sunglasses and you can see through the glare and you can see things underneath it? They've been there all along, you just haven't been able to see it. And I started realizing that just around me, in my own neighborhood, in Harrisburg, there were all these rests of hospitality. I started to look and see if I could identify all of the people who were vulnerable, who would otherwise be served by social services, that were actually being supported informally by neighbors by each other. You, you may have slept through it, but in the morning, at about 6.30 this morning, I heard, coming up the street, the singing lady. And the singing lady comes up the street every morning between 6.30 and quarter to seven on her way to Mass. There are two things that happen in the morning. First, you hear the singing lady. Then the bells ring at seven o'clock for Mass. That's what starts the day in this neighborhood. And the singing lady is a woman with some type of mental disability, had an illness when she was a child, apparently. And she is totally accepted in this neighborhood. She has friends, neighbors next door she comes and sees. And actually, if you go around the neighborhood, there are all sorts of people who are supported in ways that you wouldn't notice unless you put on the glasses and really looked it took me two years to really realize that my next-door neighbor cooks breakfast and dinner every day for our other next-door neighbor who is really unable to cook for herself. And he hands it over the fence to her, you know, just on his way out. And my lawn, every time it got long, was cut. I couldn't figure out why it got cut. I was gone a lot of weekends. I found out that another one of my neighbors just had been cutting the lawn for the person who lived here before, and he just cut the lawn every time. When his lawnmower broke, he went out and bought himself a new lawnmower to cut my lawn. He doesn't even have a lawn. At the local diner, the mother of the owners is a very old lady. She's called Grandma. She comes over from next door on her walker every day for dinner time. And she comes in, and she sits down, and she eats a meal. And after everybody is gone for the day, she sits there, and she changes the menus for the next day. That's her job. And looking down this thing, I could find 15 or 20 people just in the immediate vicinity here. It's actually kind of like when you're in junior high school, and you pull out some pond water, and you put it under the microscope, and you find all these little things living in there. And this is not an unusual neighborhood. This is just a kind of a little mixed neighborhood, not very fancy at all. And I've become convinced that if you look at any truly alive neighborhood, 
I'm not talking about a sterile suburbs or a sterilized piece of a city, but something where actually life is taking place. I've become convinced that you can sit there and like that piece of pond water, you can find all sorts of people that might ordinarily be served by social services who are actually being supported by the web of relationships there by ancient traditions of hospitality of one person for each other. On Ideas Tonight, the third program in our series Beyond Institutions by David Cayley. The series continues next week, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday nights. Technical production by Lon Tulk, production assistance by Gail Brownell and Liz Nodge. You can get a printed transcript of tonight's program or the entire six-part series by calling Radio Works at the following toll-free number. 1-800-363-1530. That's 1-800-363-1530. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Lister Sinclair. Sunday afternoon on Tapestry with Peter Downey, the second part of Do Unto Others, an examination of ethics and the choices we make. It seems that many of our choices are made with the marketplace in mind. You'll hear economist John Kenneth Galbraith, among others, this Sunday afternoon on Tapestry with Peter Downey.